Sometimes life is difficult and you just need a hand to lift you up. The Bible is full of those helping hands, but how do you access them? How do you apply them? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Joseph Campbell once said, The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by way of email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is our topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, what do the Old Testament faithful teach us? And our theme text is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So again, what do the Old Testament faithful teaches? teach us. As Christians, we are always talking about faith and its indispensable role in our lives, because without it, we really are not true Christians at all. We're always looking for ways to inspire our faith toward higher and more mature levels. Finding this motivation does not have to be a difficult task, because in the Old Testament, it is full of individuals whose faith and actions were God-honoring and incredibly heroic. If we observe and study their lives, we will find a treasure trove of faith-strengthening tools and examples for our practical, everyday use. How much did they know of God's plan when they were tested? What were the obstacles that, were, that, were, that they were beset with? What kinds of social pressure did they have to deal with? Were their choices along the lines of good, better, and best, or were they clear black and white decisions? And then finally, what does all of this mean to us? So again, what do the Old Testament faithful teach us? And folks, coming up in today's podcast, just how heroic is the faith that we're talking about? Our segment two hero was tasked with announcing and preparing for the most politically incorrect thing you could possibly imagine. Now, how would you like to have been in that position today? I don't think so. Segment three opens the door to uh, being guided by faith with absolutely no idea where you're going. All you have to go on is, don't worry, just trust me, now leave your home forever. So folks, are you up for that? Our fourth segment is going to bring up having faith when you've been thrown out of a moving vehicle and left on the side of the road to die. Well, not quite, but almost. No worries, everything's fine. See how this segment hero copes with this and so much more. And last we will look at a trio of heroes who literally defied the highest power in the land and see what kind of rage that defiance kindled and how they overcame it. You've heard of road rage. You wait till you hear about king rage, and that's coming up later on. But first, did you know that there was a woman in the Old Testament who was not only a prophet, but also led Israel's army to a great victory? And that, Jonathan, is right now. So, Today, what we want to do is look at 
specific heroes of faith. And, you know, there's an awful lot of these heroes, aren't there? There really are. So how do you choose? <laughs> well, what we did actually is we is we um, sent out a, a, a request to many of our CQ contributors and said, okay, tell us some of your favorite heroes of faith from the Old Testament. And we chose to use many of those, actually only a few of those, for our theme today. That's how we choose. So we've got specific heroes, and we're going to ask the same specific questions for each and every one of these heroes. What are the questions we're going to go ask, ask, work our way through? What did they know? What did they face? What pressures were involved? What did they do? And what was the result? Okay, simple questions to drill down on the lives of each of these heroes. So our first um, hero we're going to look at from the Old Testament is from one of our CQ, CQ contributors. Her name is Deb. And Jonathan, just read her introduction, because we asked each of the contributors to give an introduction to their hero. Deborah is a hero of mine. First, a little background. When I was born, my mother wanted to name me Gloria. Not a bad name, but my father wasn't fond of it. One of the older sisters in our class was like a grandmother to me, told my parents to name me Deborah after the leader in the Bible who was strong and relied on the Lord. Deborah was a prophetess, judge, and military leader that drew her strength from the Lord. With unwavering courage because of her confidence in him, she led an army to battle and won. Imagining how women were considered in her time I can only marvel at her accomplishment. I try daily to live up to my namesake. Okay, so the first hero we're going to consider from the Old Testament is a woman whose name was Deborah. So we're going to go through those questions, and we're just taking essentially one hero per segment because there's a lot to say. And, and before we get started with this, Jonathan, we could spend an entire year of Christian Questions podcasts highlighting Old Testament heroes an entire year easily. And so there's so much, so much, so much to gain from all of this. So we're just going to give you kind of like touch on, on, on some of the high points by way of inspiration. So the first question in relation to Deborah, the hero of the Old Testament, is what, what did she know? Deborah was a chosen vessel of wisdom by God for Israel. So she knew that she was in a position to give wisdom to the people of God. Judges chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. So just kind of put yourself in that picture for a moment, because one of the dramatic things about the Old Testament especially— is that it's so male-focused. Oh, it is. But not here. Not this story. Not this particular prophet and judge. You know, and when you have those who were judging Israel, that was a big deal. This is before the time of kings. And so you had those who were put in positions of authority to keep the people in order. Deborah was one of those individuals. So she's in a position of great wisdom and influence. And it says that the sons of Israel, the men, came to Deborah and to, to her for her judgment. 
uh, you know what? That speaks volumes about this woman's power and influence. It really does. She must have been very special. I, and I think so. And I think, and we will see in some of the experiences, not a lot is written about her, but, you know, she shines as godly. And that's really what we want to, to focus on uh, with all of our heroes today. So this is where I think this is a really great place for us to start. Let's take a moment, Jonathan. Let's go to a soundbite. This is from um, Uncharted 3, What Makes a Hero? And this is from PlayStation Europe, okay? So this is an advertisement for PlayStation. Why are we playing part of an advertisement for PlayStation? Because it gives you a sense of the feel for what people look for and what a hero looks like. It's, it's hard to answer the question, what is, what is a hero, because it's such a broad term. A hero is something that we all ultimately aspire to be. You know, who doesn't want to be a hero? Who doesn't want to save the day? Somebody who has the ability to transcend, you know, things that a normal person is not able to do or a normal person would be fearful of doing. A hero is the vessel for our secret wish. Someone, I think, who is courageous in spite of their fear. He's a destroyer. The hero is a destroyer. The hero brings forth the new light. That's why, you know, it's, it's that old saying, you know, we run off into the sunset after the hero, you know, does his thing. And it's, it's about riding on into the new journey because you need to transcend. Somebody who beats the odds. Somebody who, who goes above and beyond. You know, and all of that really is, is very, uh, very telling. Somebody who goes above and beyond. Somebody who beats the odds. Somebody who transcends. And Deborah was one of those individuals. In her time, she did something that many others did in terms of being a judge, but she was also uh, a prophet, and we're going to see that coming coming through. So she knew that she was a chosen vessel of wisdom by God for Israel. So the question, next question is, what did she face? What pressures were involved with Deborah specifically? Well, Rick, she faced inaction and inadequate faith among other leaders in a time of oppression. So what she faced was a lot of sitting around and not standing up for godliness. That's what she faced. And she faced that as a woman who was standing up for godliness when the men were not. So that adds, that's a whole different level of pressure that we normally would not think about in terms of an Old Testament hero. So let's go to Judges chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, to just get a picture of some of the pressures that she uh, faced in, in her heroism. Now she sent and summoned Barak and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men, I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Okay, so let's get this straight. The woman, you know, everybody says, well, in the Old Testament, women are always weaker. Well, let's think about this. This woman tells Barak, um, the commander of Jabin's army, she says, the Lord God has commanded, go against this king, uh, Sisera. That's what God has commanded you to do. You'd think that if you get the message that that's what God commanded you to do, you'd think that, okay, it's a pretty much a pretty safe command that I should go do that. 
well, do you think he really trusts her as a prophetess? Maybe he's like, you know, I'm not sure. She's a woman and she's telling me to go do something. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you come with me? Yeah. <laughs> it's it, like, it, it's what, all, a, what a coward, should yeah, I say? Yeah. I think, and it's almost like, okay, well, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Yeah, you know? absolutely. But so she does. I mean, that's the, that's the incredible thing. We're talking about somebody who, who defies the odds. And so what does she do? That's the next question in defining very quickly, obviously, defining Deborah's heroism. What does she do? She not only prophesied victory, she led the army to victory, an unheard of feat. Okay. So in the previous verse, in Judges 4, 6 through 8, you saw the prophecy. Behold, God said, go and march. The... Um, uh, Barak says, well, if you go with me, I'll go. Otherwise, I'm not going. And so after that, what's her response to his cowardice? She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. So it's interesting because you see absolutely no hesitation on the part of this woman. You're right. There was no, it, you don't see any sense of hesitation in her judgment over Israel. It says they came to her for judgment. There's no hesitation in giving the prophecy that God says to go to, to battle. And there's no hesitation to say, okay, I'll go. She says, I will surely go with you. And not only that, Rick, she is judging Barak. And saying, God will not give this victory to you because of your cowardice uh, and asking me to come with you. You're right. So what happens is she knows that God's word has to be fulfilled. That's a hero. She knows yes. God's word has to be fulfilled. So she's willing to go into harm's way herself to do that. So next question. We know what she did. She went gladly without hesitation. What was the result of her going? Complete victory and the praising of God. The song of Deborah is in Judges chapter 5. Okay, so the next chapter of Judges is all about this song of victory. But for right now, let's go to Judges 4, verses 14 and 15. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and at his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera enlightened from his chariot and fled away on foot. So the battle is a rout. Israel utterly overcomes the enemy because Deborah is the one who gets them to go. Deborah is the one who says, attack. Deborah is the one who is the godly leader here. And then you see Sisera, the, the king of the, of the alternate forces, he, he gets away. And Rick, you were telling me uh, before the podcast about how the woman won got the victory. And it, and it wasn't the prophetess. No. Deborah here, was no, it? No, no. Actually, what ends up happening, it's kind of gross. So, folks, plug your ears if you don't like gross. But the scripture says that Sisera gets away. Now, he's the king. You know, he's the one you, you're supposed to, to get. And he runs away, and he runs, and, and this Israeli woman sees him and says, here, come lay down and rest. And she lets him go to sleep 
inside of her tent and she takes a, 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 a tent stake and she pounds it right through the, his temple, right into the ground. And of course, she kills him. So she is the one who overcomes the king, not Beric, because he did not have the faith to do so. The prophecy was fulfilled, wasn't it, from Deborah? And Deborah was the hero in every way. So each segment, Jonathan, we want to end with what we call a heroic habit. What's our first heroic habit based on looking at Deborah's uh, experiences and her courage? Seek God first and always. Speak his will and lead those who need focus with unflinching courage through whatever hardship lies ahead. Okay. Lead those who need focus with unflinching courage. That's part of what a hero really does, is when there is a lack of courage, a lack of fortitude, a lack of principle, that's the person who stands up, like Deborah, and says, this is the way we should go. This is how we should follow reverently in God's ways. In the context of a male-dominated culture, Deborah sure did show everyone what godly reverence brings. Deborah guided and led her people back to God. So what can we learn from the heroism of Noah? Rick and Jonathan have been friends for decades and co-workers on this weekly podcast for just about that same length of time. Since they know each other so well, sometimes Jonathan has to rein Rick in because, let's face it, Rick can start an in-depth analysis at a moment's notice with all those facts stored in his head. So thank you, Jonathan, for keeping Rick in check when you add your comments to help us understand on a non-professor level. And don't shy away to ask Rick and Jonathan a question. They love answering all of them at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. What's next, gentlemen? One of the big lessons we need to absorb right here is that heroes of faith become became heroes within the context of the needs of their time. Deborah was called upon to guide and lead, while our next hero, Noah, was called upon to save the world by doing what seemed ridiculous and absolutely impossible. So Deborah was called upon to win a victory, essentially, and to keep consistency and reverence in Israel. We're going back in time now to Noah. He's just simply called upon to save the world. Oh, is that all? That's all. Just some, <laughs> some simple little thing, literally to save, to save the world, and, and actually, in a sense, to judge the world at the same time, as we shall see. Uh, our, our Christian Questions contributor, Tim, uh, had this to say about the hero Noah. Noah is a hero of faith of mine because of his complete devotion to the unseen. God simply told him that it was going to rain and that he needed to build an ark for his family. What even is rain? What is an ark? These probably were some of his first questions. Then as he started building, everyone would mock him. He and his family were wasting their time building a giant boat. Despite the ridicule and embarrassment, he kept going nail after nail, board after board, day after day. He fought for God's vision and warning. What if it doesn't rain? Can I even afford all this wood? How embarrassing would it be if I'm wrong? I'll be a laughingstock for the rest of my life. No, God is faithful and he gave me a command. I will do according to his will. 
Noah shows me that struggling for God is not glorious and rewarding in the beginning, but obeying his will to the end grants us the reward. I want to be a hero of faith like Noah. Uh, you know, and I I love being able to do uh, podcasts like this where we get contributions from others who have something they really truly appreciate and just sort of just tell you why. And there's a lot in what he said. The first thing that I just want to highlight from what Tim said is, you know, Noah's a hero of faith of his because of his complete devotion to the unseen. Think about that. He was devoted to something that had never happened, building something that had never been built in a context and with a mission that had never been heard of before. And yet his complete devotion was to that which was not seen. It had never rained up until that time. Uh, There was just dew that appeared on the grass. That was it. And so he was told that it's going to rain, but it's never done that before. And then I'm building this boat to float on this rain that is coming. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. That's hard. Yes, makes no sense. Totally, totally, completely out of the realm of normal. And yet Noah is absolutely dedicated. So, So what did Noah know to begin with? Well, Noah knew God, and he knew what was to come, and he knew to obey. All right. See, the first thing is he knew God. And with every hero that we look at, they knew God. They knew God, and they reverenced God. He knew what was to come because God told him. And then he knew that he had to follow instructions, even if it made no sense from an earthly standpoint. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, Jonathan, is a description of Noah, and it has these several points that are really powerful in describing his incredible faith. So read through the scripture, then we'll touch on some of the points. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he commanded the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Okay, so the first thing that it says in Hebrews eleven seven is he's warned by God about things not yet seen. So he's warned about something that is completely alien to the world. That's right. Okay. In reverence, it says. I love that. In reverence, he prepared an ark. He didn't do it like, oh, you're not going to believe. You know, he comes home from work one day, and his wife says, so Noah, how was your day? And it's not like he says, you know, you're not going to believe. God came to me and he said, Noah, you're going to stop doing your normal job and you're going to build a big boat. I don't know what God's talking about. He's asking me to build this boat. I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. There's none of that. What it says is, in reverence, he prepared an ark. And and Rick, he was specially chosen for this mission. That must have been very humbling to Noah. I'm sure it was, and but he knew the salvation of his family depended on it, and That's the right. and the condemning of the world because the world was dark at that time, and it says as a result he became an heir of the righteousness which is a is according to faith. So it gives you a sense of the the power of the faith of Noah in the preparation time of the ark. Let, let's pause for a moment. Let's go to uh, Marvel. Okay, another YouTube video. This is from Marvel. What is it to be a hero? And again, we're just picking things that have that sort of inspirational feel that get us to think about heroes. And of course, heroes today are, you know, for the most part, they're fantasy. 
what we're doing is we're picking out the, 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 the qualities that we look at in those fantasy characters and finding them in real life human beings in the Old Testament. What is it to be a hero? Look in the mirror and you'll know. It's too late for me. But not for you. This is your chance. The chance to earn that look in your daughter's eyes. To become the hero that she already thinks you are. It's not about saving our world. It's about saving theirs. Look into your own eyes and tell me you are not heroic. That you have not endured or suffered or lost the things you care about most. You know, it, it, dramatic, okay? You know, and, but the idea, you know, the idea in that, in that, one, um, that one clip, and that, that was a, a voice from the, the Marvel story of Ant-Man, I think, or something. And he says, you know, it's too late for me, but, you know, you can be the hero that your daughter already thinks you are. And so the idea is step up. There's something big, difficult, and unlikely that needs to be done. And if it needs to be done, why aren't you doing it? And that's kind of the way I look at Noah. There's something amazing and difficult and unlikely that needs to be done. And you're right. God called on him to step up and do it. So, so what did Noah face? What pressures were involved in Noah's heroism? Well, Rick, life and death pressures would have weighed him down for the many years of preaching ahead. Okay, so there would have been life and death pressures i mean just just the the because he knows that the world that was is coming to an end because he believes god second peter chapter 2 verse 5 and did not spare the ancient world but preserved noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly okay i i you know you get a lot of hints in the New Testament about who and what Noah was in the Old Testament. You know, in the, in the Hebrew Scripture, it gave us a sense of the reverence and being warned by God and so forth. In Second Peter 2.5, it says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So, Jonathan, when you think about that, how do you, how do you picture that unfolding as Noah is building the ark? What, what it, to you, what does it mean for him to be a preacher of righteousness? Well... He has his family close to him in this project. And so he's trying to lead by example. And the reason that God's destroying the world is because so much evil and warped mentality everywhere around him. So he's trying to hold the standard up of doing what's right, being honest and true, uh, which is not seen in the world around him. And, you know, I can imagine that the... Um the ridicule he would have faced would have been un unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Because he's doing something. First of all, he probably stuck out like a sore thumb in that world anyway because he wasn't going, going down the road of the rest of the world. Okay, so he's already odd in relation to the world. And now he's talking to the rest of them about your doom is coming unless, unless you decide to become godly. And he spends years and years and years and years on this incredible project. So he faced incredible life and death pressure as well as, the, well as the ridicule and all of those kinds of things. So what does he do? What does Noah do? 
God's will, Rick. <laughs> Noah built a massive boat on dry ground. Okay. And that just sounds odd when you think about the fact that he would have had no way to bring it to water, however far away water would have been. It's like, now there is an exercise in futility right there. Go ahead. Build that massive boat on dry ground. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, and it, it's a matter of let God's grace lift the boat is really what it boils down to. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 to 14. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourselves an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. So God gets specific with him and tells him what to do and how to do it, and he tells him why. The end of all flesh has come before me, because the earth is filled with violence, and I'm about to destroy, to destroy it all. And of course we know that there was a, a kind of corruption involved in the earth that really sent things over the edge with the mixing of the, uh, the, the, the spirit beings with human beings, which is a hybrid race that was something that was not part of God's intend, intended uh, um, results. Exactly. Uh, can you imagine living in a world with these giants on the earth controlling and, and taking what they wanted? Uh, it, it was a scary time. Yeah, and they would have been giants perhaps physically, but especially intellectually. You know, oh, yeah. they would have been so far above and beyond the, the, the average human being. So, and this, and God said, no, this cannot, this cannot continue. So with such corruption surrounding him, we can't even begin to imagine the magnitude of this project. Now, here's the thing about Noah. This project is not a year-long project. It's not a five-year project. I mean, Jonathan, we've been doing Christian Questions for 20 years. Right. How does that compare to the project that Noah was working on? That's a small <laughs> drop in the bucket. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right. it, took, it was about a 120-year project to have this art completed. So you're talking about more than a lifetime for all of us. And you're saying, well, you know, they lived longer then. But, you know, that's an amazing thing to dedicate that amount of time to something that was unseen. You realize that there would have been no rain during that whole 120 years. There would wow. have been no external evidence that the flood was coming except for the building of the boat. So Noah had nothing for decades and decades and decades and decades to confirm what he was doing was correct. Nothing. And the scripture says he reverently built the ark. You know, and, and going back to Tim's comments, he said, uh, one of the things he said here was, despite the ridicule and embarrassment, he kept going nail after nail, board after board, day after day. He fought for God's vision and warning. That's all he had was God's vision and God's warning, but it was completely unseen. What was the result of all of this? That's kind of an easy question because we all know the story, Jonathan, but what was the result? The ark was ready, it was boarded, and the flood came. Genesis 7, 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, 
and of animals that are not clean by twos, a male and his female. So what happened also was not only the boarding of the ark and the flood coming, but salvation happened. God's creation survived because of the heroic faith and continuous actions of Noah. And so, you know, Jonathan, let's just pause here in in the story for a moment, because this is an important thing. Noah worked no matter what. How easy do we get discouraged as we go through a difficult time in our lives? And we feel like, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I can hold on for another day. Think about Noah. Think about no external proof. And you're working for decades and decades by yourself, by yourself with your family, in a world that thinks you're ridiculously stupid, and you go and build this ark. That's a hero of faith. It is. For it, sure. <laughs> it is. It's a tremendous, tremendous example of inspiration. Genesis chapter 8, verses 16 through 21. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So Noah finds grace in the sight of God, and his incredible faithfulness gives, you know, gives us an opportunity to live, frankly. You know? So it really is, and he's a great, great, great picture of, the, of Jesus building the vessel you know, the sacrifice of his life to save the world. You know, it gives us a real, real strong sense of that. And again, I want to go back to, um, to one of Tim's comments uh, in his little paragraph to, to begin this. He says at the end, Noah shows me that struggling for God is not glorious and rewarding in the beginning, but obeying his will to the end grants us the reward. I want to be a hero of faith like Noah. I think that's just such a, such a, a, a clear-cut picture of what we're trying to capture when we talk about these specific heroes of faith. So, And Rick, I, I love the promise uh, in the end of the verse, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. How about that as a loving creator saying, I'm not going to because I won't have to. Right, right. And, and see, it, you get a sense, and when you put the story of Noah in the context of the rest of the big plan of God, it makes even greater sense of what God had allowed to happen, what God did, and what God promised afterwards. So you're right, it's, it is a tremendous promise based, built upon the shoulders of that guy who did that thing that nobody thought possible or even reasonable. What's the heroic habit for this segment on Noah. Obedience to that which is of God, no matter how impossible or incomprehensible it may seem, will always yield righteousness, reverence, and eventually deliverance. So obedience to that which is of God. Not that which we like, not that which is convenient, but that which is of God. It always brings righteousness, reverence, 
reverence and eventually deliverance. What a great lesson and example. It is amazing how much trust God put in and how much responsibility God put on Noah. Whose story would we tell after looking at Noah's faith and action? Who could even come close? Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. First of all, while comparing the faith and action of godly men and women, it is not a competition. It is a grand opportunity to see how faith thrives in wildly different circumstances. Our next example is Abraham, and he's often referred to as the father of the faithful. Why? Jesus. That's why. And we'll, we'll, we'll develop that as we go through this. So, so, Jonathan, Deborah and Noah, the first two heroes, very different. Very, very, very different. But both, Absolutely. both teach us how to stand up for something, Deborah, in, in a very different way, uh, but both give us really strong lessons. Now let's get to Abraham, uh, CQ contributor Ella. Uh, for her, I guess Abraham is a favorite. Jonathan, let's read what she wrote about uh, Abraham. My favorite faith hero is Abraham. He is called the father of faith because he had such faith in God's promises that through his long-awaited seed, Isaac, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Therefore, if God told him to sacrifice his beloved son of promise, conceived in his old age by his old wife Sarah, truly a miracle, God would surely resurrect him. Abraham didn't get that faith overnight. His faith started out when he left the land of Ur, and progressed through a series of God's dealings with him. Layers of faith built upon each other. What a great lesson for us in our consecrated lives. I must ask myself, am I growing in faith? Do I completely trust him in all circumstances? Do I internalize the great and precious promises God has given me? Abraham internalized the promises of God do I? That's a powerful question, and I would say that's a scary question. Uh, do I internalize the promises of God the way Abraham did? And uh, so let, let's go through a little bit of Abraham's experience. And again, with most of these heroes of faith, Jonathan, we could talk for an entire podcast and just scratch the surface. We're trying to do a, a hero per segment, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, but it just gives you that that that. That, that quick look at several different things so something hopefully can appeal to everybody who's listening so you walk away feeling like, I can do this. I can do this by the grace of God because I learned something here to help me do this. So, with Abraham, what did he know? Abram knew God would direct him. He knew to follow, and he knew he would be protected. Okay, so he knew several things, and you said Abram, not Abraham. 
That's right, because his name hadn't been changed right. yet. Had it. So we're going to get to that point later on in the story. But Abram knew God would direct him. This scripture, Genesis 12, 1 to 4, we're, we're just going to actually, we're going to break it into several pieces. We'll do verses 1 and 2. It's a very powerful scripture when it comes to trying to isolate what faithfulness, what heroism really looks like in relation to being godly. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. So really what God is saying is time for you to leave. Now there's nothing wrong with that message. You know, our next natural response would be, cool, where are we going? Oh, to a land that I will show you. Yeah, but where is it? Don't worry, I'll show you. Yeah, but which direction do I go? Don't worry, I'll show you. Yeah, but how long is it going to take to get there? Don't worry, I'll show you. You know, all of the things that we would look for to, to verify and to settle ourselves, none of them belong to Abraham. Yeah, but what does it look like? Yeah, what does it look like? I mean, can I plant there? Is it going to be good for, for, for um, all of my herds? You know, what about my family? Don't worry. I'll show you. That's all he had. That's all. And this is the kind of heroism that nobody really saw. Because he's just leaving his, his father's house and just, and just going. So let's go to a, a quick soundbite. Again, this is from PlayStation again, because they're talking about heroes, and I think it's kind of cool. Um, and just to get sort of the, the inspirational feel for what heroism can do and can look like uh, and, and, and what we can strive to become, again, in a godly way. You know, he heroism is about what you do when nobody's looking. He's the person who goes forward when we're afraid. The, the hero has to be very dignified. Uh, the soldier who sent into battle. Veracity, there's a, there's, a, there's a truth, a very solid truth. Fighting great villains or fighting great creatures. Yeah, the pilot who landed in the Hudson. We look toward heroes to instruct us or to, to represent us and even to represent our fantasies. Looking at a hero you almost escape yourself in a certain fashion. Because we want to see the human experience writ large, and the way you write that large is just by telling a story that has externalized violence and conflict in it. So, you know, it's interesting because PlayStation, what they're doing is they're talking about how they create hero figures in all of their games. And they use all of these qualities that we can find in the heroes of the Bible. And it's really kind of cool when you think about it. These are actual human beings that did these actual things that most people don't really recognize or appreciate. But because they're written for us, we can really have a, a front row seat to what their lives actually mean, uh, meant to us. So we know what Abraham knew. He knew that God would direct him. And so he gets up and he leaves his father's house. Now, what does he face? What pressures were involved when he left his father's house? Well, Rick, the pressures included uncertainty, a potential doubt, disunity within the many whom he uprooted, altercations and fightings from other peoples, impatience, and probably fear. So there's a lot of pressure in going someplace that you have no idea where it is, what it looks like, how long it's going to take to get there, and what's going to happen once you're there. 
There's exactly. A, and, and here's the thing. It wasn't just Abraham and his wife and a kid. It was Abraham and his family and their servants and their herds and their flocks. And he brings Lot and his family and his herds and flocks and people. So this is a major, major movement. This is not just saying, Jonathan, you and your wife are just going to have to go someplace God will show you. That can be scary. But now you're moving hundreds of people. This is a big deal. And probably thousands of cattle and sheep and all of this stuff. So this is a big talk about potential infighting and disagreement. We're not there yet. Well, how can we know if we're there? God doesn't even tell us where it is. You know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you got you got all of the frustration and and the uh, disunity and the doubt and you know then other people's trying to get what's yours i mean it would have been an amazingly difficult thing verse 3 of genesis 12 though it just gives a sense of the grace of god in terms of if you do this here's what happens and i will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed so he's basically saying, leave your father's house. Go to this land I will show you, and here's the reward. Now, the reward doesn't seem really instantaneous, does it? No, it doesn't. So it's something you've really got to work towards. So you have to face great adversity, Abraham, Abram at this point, and do something that's completely different than anything you've ever done. That's a hero. So what does he do once he gets this promise and this command? Well, he went, and while he was at it, his faith had room to take Lot and his entire household with them. Okay. So I can imagine Lot going, so where are you going? Can I come? <laughs> yeah, and he says, sure, you can come. Where are you going? God will show us. And that ended up being good enough for Lot at that point. Verse 4 of uh, Genesis 12. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, so that's another aspect of the story that we don't normally think about. Abram was not any spring chicken here. <laughs> no, 75. Wow. He, he's, he's a little bit on in years, because remember, this is long after the flood, and, and lifespans went way down after the flood. So he's not a young man, and yet he's following God without reservation. See, he had a profound ability to trust God. This first example of his faith in motion set the pattern for a man who would follow God's instructions through amazing difficulties. And, you know, phrasing it, this is an example of his faith in motion. Literally, his faith put his entire life, his entire household in motion. And where were they in motion to? Wherever God led. And again, I go back to... Um, what what Ella said in her original comments, you know, she said, Abraham didn't get that faith overnight. His faith started out when he left the land of Ur and progressed through a series of God's dealings with him, layers of faith building upon each other. And I, I just think that that's something that we have to realize that the heroism we're looking at is not something that comes upon you in an instant. You grow into it. And isn't that the same way, Rick, with our Christian walk? Yeah, when we see how the Lord helps us through difficulties. We can grow stronger and have more confidence and trust as we go along uh, in following in Jesus' footsteps. So the heroes all have shown us that development process. 
Now, yeah. now, 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 we dropped in on Deborah. We didn't see much of the development process with Deborah, but with Noah, you saw years and years and years. Abraham, there are years and years and years. Different kind of challenge, but necessarily years of growth and development. So now we've got to go to, well, what's the result of that faith, that calling out of where he was, that, that following without reservation? What's the result of all of that? Faithfulness in spite of unclear and unconvincing circumstances. 24 years later, his name was changed, and a year after that, his son Isaac, the promised one, was born. Several years later, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Abraham was obedient. You know, if you follow that up to the point of sacrificing his son, you see, okay, he's he, 24 years later, his name has changed. He has the, the, the promised seed. And it's like, wow, everything's going great. It's just the way God said it would be. And things, see, see the goodness of God. And, and then Isaac gets a little older. He says, okay, now I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham, and, and, and look, and a lot of people in our world today look at that and say, that's horrible. You know, God's a monster. Well, first of all, God didn't do it. Okay, but God tested him. Abraham knew the character of God. He knew. He unequivocally knew. His life showed that he knew the character of God. He had been following God, wandering essentially for 25 years up to this point. So his faith was sound in God's ability to, to bring Isaac back to him. Let's go to Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18, because we know what happened Abraham goes to sacrifice his son, and God stops him. And what's the result? Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, he, he told them that several times. This was the fourth time that this promise was spoken to Abraham. The fourth time. So God has an intention and he's reminding him along the way. Each time it was spoken, there were details added. This shows us how pleased God was with Abraham's faith. And Jonathan, this is an important lesson, because God has promises for those who follow him. And we need to understand that we need to see the repetition of his promises and the repetitions of his providence so that we can be heroic in our own faith. You know, here's the thing. When we are trying to do something like some of these heroes, you know, you've got, you've got Abraham and you've got Noah and you've got Deborah so far. They all had to step out of their comfort zone. Oh, to, yeah. To be able to step out of your comfort zone, you have to have conviction. True, deep conviction that you are following a godly pattern. That's exactly what each one of these guys did. Abraham, and that's how, that's how uh, Christian questions began, Rick. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> Yeah, we were talking stepping out of our comfort zone. I'll tell you that. Big time. <laughs> yep. In spite of Abraham's, um, you know, in spite of all his faith and action, he was always a stranger. This is interesting. Even in the land that he was promised. Let's go to Hebrews 11, 8 to 10, because it tells us some interesting details here about his life. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So it's interesting. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. That's kind of odd. It is. You know, you- and, and a, he was a foreigner in, in that land. And, and Rick, our Christian walk, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're living in a foreign land uh, because our hopes are heavenward. You know, and that's the thing, you know, because he was fellow heir of this, the same pro- promise, talking about Jacob, what, his faith was leading him beyond where his life could take him. That is really important in the, in the case of Abraham. And how do we know that? Because, um, well, verse 10, first of all, verse 10 of Hebrews 11 tells us exactly that. For he was looking for the city which has, has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's interesting that Abraham is never told to go find a city. But in Hebrews, it says he's looking for the city which has foundations that God built. What does that mean? That city is the picture of the new world order established by Jesus, who was the promised seed of Abraham. And Jesus himself said that Abraham could see further than his life could take him. John eight fifty six. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So it gives you a sense that Abraham, by God's grace, was able to see beyond the limits of his own life. That's how big and strong his faith was. And that is such a huge example. Don't we want to be able to see beyond the limits of our own lives? Absolutely. We want to be like an Abraham. What's the heroic habit here? Sometimes heroic faith leads us to establish a mere foundation for others to build upon, which means we don't see the results of our efforts. Any hero of faith rejoices in the simple fact that they contributed to what was beyond their reach. And that's such an important key. Contribute, even if it's completely beyond your reach. Just contribute. That's what the hero does. So far, it seems like Old Testament heroes only got to be heroes because of their lifelong devotion to God. So Deborah delivered a nation. Noah saved humanity. And Abraham fathered the faithful. What's next? We have a simple yet powerful request for you. Can you think of someone who'd enjoy listening to this podcast? Send them a text message right now. Tell them to check out our Christian Questions podcast. That's one of the great ways to spread the word. Thank you for sharing our weekly conversation with every single person you know. Well, who you want to tell is still up to you. Thanks for texting and listening. Let's go back to Rick and Jonathan as we take a closer look at our topic. Now we follow Abraham's lineage as Isaac begets Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who establish Israel. It's all fun and family until someone gets jealous of others. Joseph, the second youngest, is singled out for removal, and this treachery gives birth to another amazing story of faith and action. And, and you know, the, the, the thing about faith, Jonathan, for to, to be heroic, it does it. You just can't have faith. It has to be faith in action. It's got to be faith in motion. It's got to be faith 
that does something that stands above, that goes beyond, that thinks, that acts, that's courageous, that, that is willing to deny itself. That's amazing stuff. Next, And Joseph is a great picture of that. So our Christian Questions contributor, Cindy, had this to say about Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament is a huge favorite of mine because, to my mind, he is the most personable. He had experiences I can relate to, family struggles, sibling rivalry, being on the receiving end of jealousy, which is as cruel as the grave. He had the opportunity to revile again, but chose to revile not. During all his experiences, Joseph continually called upon the Lord, and the Lord was with him. Perhaps the biggest blessing I've received from Joseph's story is when he said, you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. I find that very reassuring in my walk of faith, that no matter what happens to me or by whom, God has the matter well in control. You know, and that last phrase is so important. No matter what happens to me or by whom, God has the matter well in control. And that's what, you know, we started talking about a little bit, you know, God's providence. And, and to be able to, to step out in faith heroically requires conviction that God does have the matter well in hand. So looking at Joseph, and, and, and you know, several of these heroes, Jonathan, we've done series on already. So we're, we have. yeah, so we're just, we're just touching on some highlights. And really, folks, just in terms of, of, of just handing out some inspiration, saying, here's some heroism. And in the world in which we live, there's a sad lack of it. Let's hold on to some of these things and, and, and change the world around you by adopting some of these characteristics. What did Joseph know to get us started? Joseph knew he had favor in the eyes of God and also his father Israel. He also knew he was disliked by his 10 older brothers. Joseph also knew how to be upright and honest. Okay, Joseph knew a lot of things early on. As a matter of fact, at 17 years old, there's a lot going on in this young man's life. Let's go to Genesis chapter 37, uh, verses 2 to 4. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, along with the sons of his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. You know, and, and when our contributor Cindy wrote the paragraph describing Joseph, she said, he had experiences I can relate to. And she said, family struggles, sibling rivalry, being on the receiving end of jealousy. Um, he had opportunities to get back at others, but he didn't. And you can see that at 17 years old, he was righteous, he was clear, he was about his father's work, and it didn't go over with the 10 older brothers. And that's a, look, that's a whole big crew to get mad at you, you know what I mean? That's for sure, especially when you're younger and smaller. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So he knew that he had God's favor. He knew that he had his dad's favor, his father Israel's favor. And he knew that he had the disfavor of his 10 older brothers. But he also knew that in spite of that disfavor and the pressure, he would be honest and sincere and, and be honoring to his father and therefore to God.
Uh, let's go back to Marvel. Just a, another quick video, um, uh, YouTube video, uh, what it is to be a hero. And this kind of fits the Joseph story. This theme here is that we always have a choice. Whatever comes our way, whatever battle we have raging inside us, we always have a choice. Tell me, me buddy. My friend Harry taught me that. He chose to be the best of himself. It's the choices that make us who we are. And we can always choose to do what's right. But he's my friend. So is mine. Everything that happens now is in your hands. You know, and that's such a, that was a Spider-Man clip at the beginning there. You know, that's such a powerful thing. The idea that we have a choice. Now, sometimes, Jonathan, our choices get messed up by how we feel. And we got to be careful. And when you look at a hero like Joseph specifically, what we realize, if we were to spend a whole bunch of time on Joseph, we would realize that how he feel, how he felt rather, never mattered. He was consistent, Rick. The only thing that mattered was the right, righteous thing to serve and honor God. So we know what he knew. So what did Joseph face? What kind of pressures were involved in his life? Peer pressure, rejection, abuse, slavery, false accusations, imprisonment, isolation. Rick, just to name a few. (laughs) It's amazing when you think about it. As a young, young man, he is sold into slavery. He's, he's abandoned by his brothers. You know, I, I used the example at the beginning of the, of the podcast, you know, being thrown out of a moving car and left on the side of the road to die. That's pretty close to what happened to Joseph here. It really is. <laughs> you know, and so he is in a foreign land as a young, young man. And, you know, what, what do you do? You've got all this incredible pressure. Genesis 37, verse 28. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So he gets sold into slavery and he ends up in the land of Egypt, far away from home, far away from his father who loved him so much. And he's on his own. He's got nothing. And it would be so easy to just blend in. It would be so easy to just become a part of and do what everybody else does and follow how everybody else thinks because you are uh, an outcast where you are. But does that is that what he does? What did Joseph do? Joseph prospered. No matter the conditions or the years that passed, Joseph always applied the grace and wisdom of God that he was given, and eventually he was delivered. So what did he do? He always prospered. How did he prosper? See, here's the thing. How does he prosper? Does he prosper because he outwits everybody around him? Does he prosper because he knows how, you know, he's a real master of the sleight of hand and he gets the upper hand on people? He always applied the grace and wisdom of God. That's it. And that's the way, the sole way that he prospered. And, and again, there's a ton of stuff to talk about with the heroics of Joseph as a young man living in a foreign land as a slave. Just let's, t- let's highlight three particular instances 
where you see the character of Joseph, 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 Joseph shining through. First of all, in Potiphar's house. Now, he's a slave in the house of Potiphar. This is Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Potiphar sees something different about this guy, Joseph. And he looks at this young man, Joseph, and says, this is a guy that's, that, that's head and shoulders above and beyond everybody else in, in, in relationship to work ethic and integrity. And he's got this godliness thing that makes him incredibly trustworthy. And think of the value that Joseph brought to his household yeah. in every way monetarily, but also full of integrity and honesty. And, and so Potiphar takes this foreign slave and says, you're in, you're in charge of my entire household because he knows that he can trust him. And Joseph goes about the business of being trustworthy, not you know trying to draw attention to himself, just doing everything that he is supposed to do in the way he's supposed to do it. Of course, he ends up falsely accused uh, by Potiphar's wife, and he gets thrown in prison. He didn't do a single thing wrong. He's in prison. Now, you've been honorable and godly and full of integrity and wisdom and all of that, and now you're in prison as a result. It's really easy because nobody's there to see you. It's really easy to just give up and say, okay, I've been abandoned. Did Joseph do that? No, no. Genesis 39, 21 and 22, just a snapshot of him in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. Whoever heard of that? <laughs> I mean, really, you want to talk about rising above. He's in prison. He's literally himself shackled or in chains or whatever, you know, however he was, you know, being restrained. And yet he is in charge of all of the other prisoners and the jailer trusts him. Jonathan, his integrity must have been so incredibly obvious that people would stand there in awe. And say, can you believe that? Maybe that's what bothered his brothers so much. <laughs> you know what? No, and, you know, and I think you're right. I do. I think that that's really a part of it. He was just like, I got to do the right thing. I just have to. That's part of being a hero. He's in prison, and yet he shines as a prisoner. And then, of course, he gets out of prison. So let's take another little snapshot of Joseph before Pharaoh. So we're going to go a couple of chapters, Genesis 41, verses 38 to 40. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and according to your command, all my people shall be do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph again comes through. Now look, he always comes through riding the coattails of God's favor. How do you ride the coattails of God's favor? 
you work in a godly way, you work with strength and fortitude and enthusiasm, and you have such honesty that anybody looks at you and says, I can trust this person. And Pharaoh says, I am the only person in my entire kingdom kingdom above you. Now save us. Because he told Pharaoh, you know, there was going to be a great famine. So you see that Joseph's integrity and godliness rises him to this, this high, high, high level. So what's the result of what he did, of his prosperity by being so godly and so heroic in his faith? Humble, family-saving, world-saving leadership, and wisdom. You know, and it's no accident that we started the description here with what's the result with the word humble, because he was. And that's another thing about Joseph that is so incredibly powerful, is he never seemed to let the power and authority and responsibility he was given get bigger than he was. He was always big enough to be able to handle those things. And when I say big enough, I don't want to be misunderstood. It's not that he was big enough because he had ego. He was big enough because he was standing for righteous principles. He was able to stand tall on righteousness and godliness and reverence and always do the right thing. Genesis 50, verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, of course, this is Joseph talking to his family after he reveals that, hey, it's me, Joseph. Remember me? You know, the one that you threw in the pit, you left there to die? That one? Yeah, that's me. And he said, look, am I in God's place? Am I here to judge you? I'll take care of you. Because he tested them and he saw that they had goodness in them. And so he honored that. And he was able to forgive them. Can you imagine the power of the forgiveness that he put in place right there? He could have easily borne that anger and, 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 and desire for jealous revenge for his entire life but he didn't. That dream was fulfilled yeah. for him saving the Egyptians and the world around them through that drought. Absolutely. So he, he just was honored to, to do God's will, Rick. And he knew it. Yeah, and see, that's the beauty. He knew it, and he didn't act above his station, but he fulfilled the station that God gave him in a really ho- heroic way. Let's go back to our CQ contributor, Cindy, once again with a couple of other lessons that she drew from the life of Joseph. Another great lesson I cherish is that when God says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This played out when God arranged circumstances for Joseph's brethren when they had to go back and tell their father Jacob that Joseph was indeed still alive and asking for him. I personally find this very reassuring in that God does take into account the wrongs committed against his little ones, and he does make it right. Even though we may not see the events playing out, it may take a long time, as is the case with Joseph. I find it very strengthening. You know, and that's a, that's a beautiful lesson, because God does make things right 
Sometimes it's not in this life, but sometimes later on in judgment for many people. But sometimes it's much, much later in this life. And we think that we've been wronged or something's happened to us. We need to be able to rest in the providence of God. That's what Joseph did. And by doing so, he was able to rise to heights that no one could have ever fathomed for such a young man who was a foreigner. What's the heroic habit uh, from this segment? The true power of a heroic life of wisdom, integrity, and action is often not noticed as the hero ages, but is only embraced and honored at the end of the hero's journey. You know, Joseph really became famous after the world was saved. Not before. He was, he was, he was recognized and well-known, but he became the savior of the, the world at that time obviously a picture of Jesus. It is amazing how the biblical heroism we're talking about really does touch on all areas of life. One prophetess and leader, two who saved civilization, and the father of the faithful. What could be next? We're constantly looking to our listeners for your feedback on our weekly episode discussions. Let us know if you'd like to hear more topics like this one or new topical suggestions. Keep your comments coming at ChristianQuestions.com and our Facebook page. We're also talking about topics in Reddit, and you should check us out helping answer questions on Quora. That's Q-U-O-R-A.com. We're engaging in convo everywhere. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. Next, we honor three relatively unsung heroes of the Old Testament who lived in the shadow of one of the great Old Testament icons. Daniel was in a class of his own as a leader and a man of God, and yet the three Hebrew men who were highlighted alongside of him were actually pretty powerful as well. So we're going to be taking a look at these three Hebrew men that were noticed alongside of Daniel. Hey, Rick, I have a question before we get started. I I don't see a CQ contributor on this segment. Why is that? Well, you know, sometimes I want to just give my own own favorite. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so this is, these three Hebrews are really special to you. They are. They are for for very, very, very strong reasons. And, And one of the chief reasons I'll tell you right up front is that there were three of them and they needed to work together. And there's, I, I find great, deep inspiration in their faith. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what did they know, Jonathan? What did they know? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel grew up faithful to God and his providence. At this time, they had been in respectful Babylonian positions for about 20 years. You know, a lot of times we think of the three Hebrew youths in the fiery furnace. They were not young, young men here. They were in the 30s or 40s when the episode of the fiery furnace came around. And so we're going to drop in on their experience in Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and we are really condensing these verses because we have a lot to talk about in a short period of time. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue and sent for all the officials in the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. When they were there standing by the statue, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. You are to fall down and worship the golden statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship 
shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Okay, so there's a, a clear-cut proclamation that you've got to the entire, all of Babylon must bow down to this statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has had built in his honor. So it is a big deal, and the people are all gathered, and it's a huge announcement, and there's trumpets, and there's fanfare, and there's probably confetti and parades and everything else. It is a big, big, major deal. We'll see what happens in a moment. Let's go back to PlayStation one more time because they like heroes. So do we, but for different reasons, okay? Um, and let's go back to, they're, they're talking about heroism and, and you know, when the, when the chips are down. You know, if the chips were down, would I have the will and the courage and the grace and the wisdom to do the right thing? I think everybody's got it in them. It's just whether or not you want to, you know, you want to exploit that aspect of yourself or not. I mean, you, you can be um, greater than yourself. You can defend a cause that is greater than yourself. All the attributes of that moment gives you to either take the leap of faith to do what is great. Would we do what he does? Um, would we be capable? And, and that's why we invest. And that's, I think, also why we're drawn increasingly to heroes who are flawed. So, you know, it's interesting because they started out, if the chips were down, would you do what was important? And that's exactly the circumstance you have in relation to, to Hebrew faith in the Babylonian world. The chips are really down in this experience. So, first of all, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel grew up faithful to God, knowing about God's providence. They had seen his providential deliverance many times, and they're now in respectful positions in Babylon. So what did they face, these three Hebrews? What pressures were involved? The pressure of the world's most powerful king, the pressure of public humiliation, peer pressure, and the fact, Rick, that Daniel was not there. See, Jonathan, there are four distinct pressures here, and I, I sense a, a major lesson coming from this, these, this one sentence, okay, at some future time. The pressure of the world's most powerful king, okay? That's a pretty significant pressure. You can't, oh, yeah. you can't get bigger than that. The pressure of public humiliation. This was a public event. Everybody was supposed to be watching and be a part of it. The peer pressure that all of the other major players in the Babylonian governing system were bowing down to this statue. And the fact that Daniel, their unequivocal leader, was not present at the time. He's not there to show them, to guide them. They are entirely on their own. That's significant because they had learned from Daniel, and we'll see how they respond. Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and again, we've condensed these verses to try to get a lot of story into a short time. Certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone shall fall down and worship the golden statue. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. So it's, ha-ha, we're telling... That, that's what's going on. Because again, these three men were, were, had high, high integrity. 
and the king really, really, really trusted them. And these others, when they saw, and they knew that this would be an issue because they, they knew. They were trying to set them up, Right, Rick. of course. So they knew that they're men of faith, and they just watched and waited just so they could pounce. And they went to the king immediately and said, these Jews, they're not doing what you said. You put them in such, and of course I'm paraphrasing, okay? You put them in such a powerful position and they don't even honor the statue that you yourself decreed every single person is supposed to bow down to. That's a problem. That's a problem because now the king is, you know, in this very public setting and he's got these, quote, traitors being brought to him in this, after this big, big, big fanfare where it's the, the decree. Everybody has to follow. So what did they do? What did these three Hebrews do when they were supposed to be following the, the Babylonian rules? Well, Rick, they stood. They simply stood for right even in the face of humiliation and death. This is enormous. And folks, you know, we're talking about heroes and we've gone through several different examples. And every single one of these heroes does the same thing. They stand. They stand for something. They stand for something bigger than themselves, something more meaningful than themselves, and they're willing to accept whatever consequence comes from that stance. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 15, and I'm going to interrupt you a couple of times as we go through this. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded them to be brought in so they brought those men before the king. Now, now let's pause there for a second, because the king's respect is obvious. He's Instead of just sentencing them to death, he brings them to him. So his respect is clear, and his rage and forgetfulness are also obvious. Now, I say forgetfulness because previously he had acknowledged the God of Daniel as a God above all gods. That's right. So we're seeing how he has gotten a little forgetful on that. And he, what he's going to do is he verifies the, the accusation. So we're going to jump forward a, a verse or two here. Let's go to verse 15. Now, if you are ready to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? So it's interesting, several things here. Now, if you're ready... You fall down and worship. So he gives them another chance. So you're, he's showing that he's got care for them. But he's also showing that he's not going to bend an inch. He's showing he's pitting himself against their God. Because he says, who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Not a good challenge. Not a good challenge, no. <laughs> okay. So, but he does give them a second chance. And and, th and this can be a real temptation for rationality, because think about it. You know, th th this is not a bluff. You know that he's serious, and now you're the center of attention. It's not everybody. It's not thousands and thousands of people. It's just three. And what good are you to God or to anyone if you're dead? I mean, how can you serve God? How can you witness to God if you're dead? So you, I could see them thinking through, like, well, maybe we should bow down at this point. It's, you know, it's it's in front of the king. We understand, we don't really mean it, but it's just something so that we can continue to witness to God's glory. But is that what they do with it? And, and Jonathan, th this is why, right here, is why I love this story so passionately 
in terms of the heroism of these individuals. Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. They answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. So here they are before the most powerful king in the world at this point, And they've been given the ultimatum, bow down or die. It's really, really simple. And they say, King, we, and it's interesting. It's, you know, I don't know who did the speaking. I don't know if they all spoke, but they were completely in harmony with one another. We don't need to present you any kind of defense. In other words, you know our God. You do. We know you know. We don't need to remind you because you already know. If God wants to deliver us from this death that you're pronouncing, he will. But if not, and Jonathan, here's the thing, if not, it just doesn't matter. Because we will not serve any graven image. Period. That is heroism in the face of certain torture and death. That is and their leader is not there, but you've got these three, and you see the fortitude of these three. And I can imagine, uh, you know, and, and I love this example, Jonathan, because, again, with Christian Questions, it is a team effort. We work together, and it's not just you and I. It's you and I and all of the other volunteers that, that, that join forces and, and, and work shoulder to shoulder to make this all work. And I love this example of standing together and saying, we live for God together, and we will die for God together. To me, that is the, the, the power of this particular story. So, what's the result? God's impossible and mighty deliverance. Okay, again, you know, we've had some impossible things God has showed us in some of the heroes we've examined, and here again is something that's impossible. God's impossible and mighty deliverance. Daniel chapter 3, uh, verse 19, and then verses 23 to 26. And, and uh, Jonathan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you in a moment. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against them that his face was distorted. Okay, let's pause right there. Let's just, let's just imagine that. He was so angry that his face, you know, the, the, the expression on his face, if the scripture says his face was distorted, he <laughs> is, I mean, you know, you hear about road rage and people, you know, getting, you know, losing it. This is losing it. And, and he was saying, you said what yeah. to me? <laughs> so, so his face is distorted and we know the depth of his anger by what he does next. Go ahead. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary. But the three men fell down bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. 
It's amazing how quickly he remembered the Most High God, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> when he is faced with unequivocal, inexplicable evidence that God's power supersedes his. I mean, God could have crushed him like a bug, and he knew it. And he recognizes it immediately, and he gives honor to God again because their lives are saved miraculously because they had such faith. So the conclusion of this particular story is in Daniel uh, 3, 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So, Jonathan, if I were to try to wrap up, I mean, we're wrapping up in just a minute here, but to wrap up before we wrap up, I would reread that last phrase. They disobeyed the king's command. This is what a hero is. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And that is what heroism of faith in Scripture actually looks like. That's what it's about. What's our heroic habit as we close this out? Sometimes the heroism of one's entire life is encapsulated in a single decision and action. These three men chose together to honor God in life and in death. You know, and, and that's such a powerful thing. They honored him in life, and it was very obvious by how they served. And then they honored him when the time for their death was obvious. It was obvious there was no escape, and yet God delivered them. But the honor of God did not change. So we start with Deborah and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and the three Hebrews. And what we see are examples of those who stand strong for the principles of righteousness with reverence to choose to follow the will of God no matter what. And folks, that's what a real hero is. Heroism isn't a moment. It is a lifetime. Let's be heroes for the sake of Christ because that's what our calling is. Be a hero by learning what the heroes of Scripture did for us. For Jonathan, Rick, and Christian Questions, we hope you enjoyed being with us. Heroism is inspiring, and it's available. Go find it. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we're talking about, this is a good one, is it God's fault that we have evil in this world? Is it God's fault? Talk to you next week. <laughs>